Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. Good morning. Thanks, guys. Um, just want to add my welcome to uh, Matt's. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Brett. Um, I'm one of the pastors on staff here at New Spring. Um, and we're actually in our last uh, I Am uh, message this morning. We've actually finished the series as of today. Um, I'll sort of Christmas next week, I'm, I'm speaking a brief message and I'll sort of do a bit of a conclusion of this message, this series as well. So make sure you don't miss that. Um, so we're in John chapter 11 this morning, but we're going to be in a little journey before we actually get there. So my question that I'm going to ask everybody today as we start off is, who here thinks about their death? A couple of hands? Yeah, it's going to be one of those messages, I'm just saying. Because it's often, it's not something that we often do nowadays. We don't, our modern sensibilities, we don't want to be reminded about death. We don't want to necessarily be reminded that one day there will be a time when we aren't here. Our funerals aren't necessarily about the death of the person, but are about a celebration of life. Caskets are sanitized, closed, or even hidden some of the time. And we don't want our children to be present at funerals, and we certainly don't want them to see a dead body. Modern science has prolonged life to the point where we're given the illusion that death is under our control. But death happens, and will happen to us all. Um, I worked at St. John Ambulance as a chaplain for four years, and what struck me constantly or consistently is that nobody who ended up in the back of an ambulance expected to be there when they woke up in the morning. They woke up and went, my day is going to go as planned. And this afternoon, they're in the back of an ambulance. We think, I've woken up every day of my life so far. So why wouldn't tomorrow be any different? But there is going to be one day where tomorrow you don't wake up. I've recently been introduced to this thing called Memento Mori. Does anyone know what Memento Mori is? No one? Okay. Memento Mori is a Latin term that says, remember, you must die. Who's happy they're here this morning? <laughs> so it's an ancient practice of reflecting on our mortality. Now, at first, it can seem a bit morbid that it's like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about my death. But what instead, what if instead of being scared 
and unwilling to embrace the truth that we actually did the opposite? What if reflecting and meditating on the fact that we are all going to die is the simple key to living life in a more purposeful way? So an ancient Roman Stoic philosopher called Seneca, he actually lived at the same time during Jesus. He died about 60 AD. He said this, It is not that we have a short time to live, but that we waste a lot of it. Life is long enough, and a sufficiently generous amount has been given to us for the highest achievements if we were all well invested. But when it is wasted in heedless luxury and spent on no good activity, we are forced at last by death's final constraint to realise that it has passed away before we knew it was passing. So it is. We are not given a short life, but we make it short. And we are not ill-supplied, but wasteful of it. Life is long if you know how to use it. Memento Mori actually has, I was going to show mine, my calendar, but I didn't, I didn't bring it. Um, you actually can get a Memento Mori calendar where you fill in every week of your life. And every week, it's 80, 80 years, and it's every week that you fill in, and you go, every week one passes, what have I done with my life this week? Have I wasted it? Have I grabbed hold of it? So on Wednesday morning, I've, said, I've shared this with a couple of people, I shared it with the team this morning. On Wednesday morning, I joined a Zoom meeting uh, as an interview uh, with Tim Keller. Um, and if you don't know who Tim Keller is, um, he is the author of multiple books. Uh, he was the senior pastor of uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in um, New York. Um, and if, you, um, if there was a mountain of success in the ministry world as a pastor, Tim Keller reached the tippy-tippy top of it. Not because he was greedy, that's just like what happened. He's been a pastor for decades. And so the interview that they did, so live Zoom, I signed up for it without realizing what time it was. It was 4 a.m. our time, so I had to get up. It was, I'm not a morning person at all. But it was, the title of the interview was called Walking With God Through Cancer. In 2020, Tim Keller was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. And the interview that he had, or the diagnosis interview that he had with his doctor when he first found out, told him, you are gonna die from this. This is incurable, inoperable. This will kill you eventually. And so he had to step down. He's been doing radiation therapy or whatever they do. Um, he's been on drug trials and he's still alive, obviously, because well, as of Wednesday morning, I saw him on Zoom. Um, but during the interview, I was taking notes, and he said a whole bunch of stuff which I wrote down. So this is some of the stuff that he said during the interview. Everyone knows that they are going to die and live as if they are never going to die. When you realize that you are going to die, the way you look at your time and God and your spouse all change. And one of the questions he was asked, because we were able to ask questions as he went and he answered them, is would I have lived my life differently knowing what you know now. And he said, I would have lived my life really differently if I'd been diagnosed of this earlier. I was too active and too distracted. 
He said that he would have changed how he spent his time dramatically if he'd have been diagnosed with this earlier. And do you know what he, wanted, what he would have done with his time instead of running a really successful church and a really successful ministry? He would have spent more of his time in prayer and more of his time in meditation. He said he wasted too much time worrying about what other people thought about him and doing things that didn't matter to impress people. I'm going to talk at the end of this sermon about how that's affected me and what I want to do about it. So one of my favourite books in the Old Testament, but actually one of my favourite books in the entire scripture, is Ecclesiastes. Does anyone else like Ecclesiastes? I, um, I read it often, like, so I know the ending. Like, I, you know, like, it's not like I forget what it, what's in it. But every single time I read it, it takes me on sort of this journey of despair because it, it talks about our humanity in such raw ways. Let me read the first several verses. So we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, starting at verse 1. The words of the teacher... Son of David, King of Jerusalem. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility, everything is futile. What does a person gain for all his efforts that he labours at under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets, panting, in, it returns to the place where it rises. Gusting to the south, turning to the north, turning, turning goes the wind." And the wind returns to its cycles. All the streams flow to the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome, more than anyone can say. The eye is not satisfied by seeing, or the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun." Can anyone say about anything, look, this is new. It has already existed in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of those who came before and of those who will come after. So there will be also, so there will also be no remembrance of those who follow them. I, the teacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to examine and explore through wisdom all that is done under heaven. God has given people this miserable task to keep them occupied. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun, and I have found everything to be futile, a pursuit of the wind. James chapter 4, verse 13 and 14 says something similar. Come now, you say. Today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. For you are like vapour that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Back in Ecclesiastes, the Hebrew for the word futile is a word called hevel. And it's a word that sometimes is translated as breath or vapour or mist or smoke. And Ecclesiastes uses that word to remind us that life is first of all temporary or fleeting, like a wisp of smoke. 
Like smoke, it appears solid. But when you try to grab it, there's nothing there. So Ecclesiastes is saying that for all of our human effort, nothing really changes. After everything we have done for our entire lives, the mountains that were there before us will still be there a hundred years after we're gone. The oceans will still be breaking on the beach. The sun will still rise and set. And Ecclesiastes reminds us that death is the great equaliser, whether you are wise or foolish, whether you are rich or poor, whether you are good or bad, we're all going to die. And the book of Ecclesiastes speaks at length about all the ways in which we try to build meaning in our lives and purpose apart from God. The author is pretty much saying that we all spend all of our emotion and all of our energy investing in things that ultimately don't have any lasting meaning or significance. Whether we pursue work or pleasure, even if you pursue wisdom, it doesn't guarantee a blessed life. So what can we do? Well, according to the author of Ecclesiastes, we can only move through life by accepting that we actually don't have control over it and that the gift of God is to enjoy the moments of life as they happen, as they happen knowing that they're not forever, to trust in God and to be free to simply enjoy your life as you experience it. So what's the conclusion? Because it takes you on a journey. If you've never read Ecclesiastes, I really encourage you to do so, because it, it does, it takes you to the depths and like, what am I doing? Um, but the conclusion of Ecclesiastes says this, chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. Fear God and keep his commands, because this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. And this is what gives life true meaning. The hope of God's judgment, that one day God will remove the futility and the vapor and bring true justice to the world. Heavy, tiny bit, don't worry. We're only a little bit in. It gets worse, don't worry. No, <laughs> I'm joking. Now, before we actually get into our text this morning, there's something that we need to have an awareness of. And, the que and what we need to have an awareness of is what did the Israelites during Jesus' time think about death and the afterlife? Because that puts a whole bunch of context into what we're talking about this morning. Now, there's a lot in here in the Old Testament, because that's obviously where they got their, their idea about um, death and afterlife from. Um, but the thing is, we don't have to press too hard into the Old Testament before discovering that there is a confident and constant hope in God's love for his people, even beyond the veil of death. 
at the heart of that hope was the knowledge that Yahweh was the creator of the world, that he would be faithful to his covenant with Israel and that his purpose for creation and his special people were love, life and glory. N.T. Wright says this, even a cursory reading of Genesis chapter 1 to 3 suggests that while humanity was not created with immortality, they were made for immortality, to know God and to enjoy him forever, to be his priest kings over creation and to rule with God over his world. End quote. So throughout the entire Old Testament scripture, the Israelites lived on, with the hope that their covenant, on the hope that the covenant with God brought them. Yahweh had promised to be the God of the living, not the God of the dead. So when Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, that meant death. Not physical death, it meant spiritual death which, in layman's terms, was a consignment to nothingness. But we know that God is the God who creates things out of nothing. And even as early as Deuteronomy, there was a promise that even exile would not be final, that repentance would bring restoration and the renewal of both the covenant and of human hearts. And this promise of restoration on the other side of exile was the hope that would eventually, eventually crystallize into the Israel belief about the resurrection of the dead as the ultimate proof of God's existence, or God, sorry, God's faithfulness. If you read Ezekiel chapter 37, the, the, the passage on the valley of the bones, of the dry bones, it's a vivid image of an unclean Israel being made clean, of an exiled Israel being restored to the land, and a scattered Israel being regathered. The new Davidic king will be restored, new temple will be built, all by a covenant-renewing act of new creation. Daniel 12 speaks of something similar, talking about a bodily resurrection of the dead. Not simply a resuscitation in which the dead will return to life much as what they had before, but to a new mode of existence, a new state of glory. So there's too much to go through in the Old Testament. Isaiah, Hosea, Ezekiel, Daniel, they all point to the same thing. That resurrection is not a fancy way of say, saying life after death, like discovering Sheol is not that bad of a place. But what they are saying was that resurrection was a reversal of death itself. That creation itself would be reaffirmed and remade. Now, during, most of, I mean, during Jesus' time, most of the Jews, not the Sadducees, but most of the Jews, believed in resurrection. But they believed that it would be a one-time event, that 
all of God's people together at the end of time, they would be resurrected where there would be a new heavens and a new earth. That God's would have a whole new world. A world like ours, only with its beauty and power enhanced and its pain and ugliness and grief abolished. And the Jews believed that within that new world, all of God's people from ancient times to now would be given new bodies in order to share and relish the life of new creation. And this act of recreation, they believed, was the great event that would bring the present age to close and would usher in the age to come. Now, rabbis distinguish between the present age, which started at creation and we're still in that age, to the, and the age to come, which refers to the messianic age, okay, or the age where Messiah returns. And the New Testament refers several times to either this age or the age to come. Um, and then we're not going to get into end time theology here because that's a rabbit hole that's deep and dark and really convoluted. But according to Jesus, if we read in Matthew chapter 24, that there'll be signs of the age to come, that there'll be persecution, that there'll be tribulation. And the age to come will end, a period of tribulation will happen, and then the age or the messianic age will come. And you go, I'm not really sure I believe that. I don't know about end time stuff. Matthew chapter 4 in Jesus' own words. Let's start reading from verse 29. Immediately after the distress of those days. So he's saying immediately after these years of tribulation. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn. And they will see the man, Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the, earth, of the sky to the other. So even Jesus predicts that there will be something that happens at the end of time. And as followers of Christ... We believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law and prophets. So now we need to look at how Jesus fits into that picture. How are we doing? Are you still with me? Bit a bit heavy so far? Okay. That's a good thing. Helps us think. So we're in John chapter 11 this morning. Um, and our... So we're going through our last statement in the I Am series where Jesus says um, to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. So I'll read through um, the context and we'll just bring out some points and um, we'll see how we go for time. So chapter 11, verse 1. Now a man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, 
the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sister sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness will not end in death, but it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Let's just pause there. Now, Jesus here does not mean that the sickness is not fatal. Okay, we, Lazarus will die. We find that out in the next few verses that he does. But Jesus is saying that Lazarus's death will not end ultimately in death. So the ultimate issue here, though, sorry, is the revelation of God, or sorry, of the glory of God. Not that Lazarus' sickness would not end in death. So the glory of God here does not mean that in order that God may be glorified or praised. But it means in order that God's glory may be revealed. And in the Gospel of John, glory is more commonly not the praise of God, uh, that is due God, but his revelation, his self-disclosure. And Jesus is saying here that the death and resurrection of Lazarus is actually not about Lazarus' resurrection in the end, in and of itself, but that this is happening to reveal the glory of God and that God's glory is revealed primarily in his son. God's glory is revealed so that the God's son may be glorified also. Let's continue. Now, Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after that, he, he said to his to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. Rabbi, the disciples told him, just now the Jews tried to stone you and you are going there again. Aren't there, tw aren't there 12 hours in a day? He, Jesus answered. If anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. He said this, and then he told them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am on my way to wake him up. He has fallen asleep. In the New Testament, death for the believer is characteristically spoken of as sleep. And John's language here is interesting because in speaking to his disciples, he says, Lazarus, our friend, but Jesus alone, I'm on my way. Jesus alone is going to wake him because Jesus alone is the resurrection and the life. So like our world today, the fear of death was universal uh, throughout the ancient world. And yes, the Jews believed in end-time resurrection, but that didn't mean that they didn't fear death. It was a foe that they couldn't defeat. And Jesus completely changes the geography around how his believers should think about death. 
For the followers of Jesus, death is no longer this hateful foe. In Jesus, death's victory has been vanquished. Its sting has been removed. Let's go on. Verse 12. Then the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will get well. Jesus, however, was speaking about the de- his death, but they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let's go to him. Just a side note on verse 14. So this statement implies supernatural knowledge. The messengers had only spoken of illness and there was no other human source of information. And he was glad that he was not there because this is a chance to prove or for Jesus to provide an opportunity to help them to believe, to increase their faith. Verse 16. Then Thomas, called twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too, so that we may die with him. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been dead, he'd been in the tomb for four days. Now that time frame means nothing to us. Our modern brains say, well, you die, like that's it. Once you're declared dead, 30 seconds after that, there's no turning back. But there's evidence of Jewish belief that when a person dies, their soul hovers over their body for three days, hoping to be able to return. And on the fourth day, when the soul sees the body change and deeper decomposition set in, the soul leaves. And it was at this point in Jewish belief that death is irreversible. And this means that if Lazarus had been dead for four days, a time had been reached when the only hope for Lazarus was an act of divine power. Verse 18. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet you know, yet, yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. What an amazing expression. Oh, sorry, Siri's speaking at me. What an amazing expression of faith. This is Martha saying, Jesus, I've, I've seen you heal others. And I believe that if you'd have been here, you would have healed Lazarus. And even in her bereavement, Martha had not lost her confidence in Jesus. She still recognizes that Jesus enjoys a particular intimacy with the Father. And this should be an encouragement for followers of believers, uh, followers of Jesus. 
even on our worst day, Jesus remains Lord. He remains the resurrection and the life. Verse 23. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So one commentator wrote that Jesus' words in, chapter, in verse 23 is a masterpiece of planned ambiguity. <laughs> so at one level, Jesus' words can be taken as Jesus' attempt to provide Martha's solace and to refer to the Jewish belief in the end resurrection. Sort of saying, well, I know he's died, but one day he'll rise again, so it's okay. But it's clear, and it's clear from verse 24, that this is how Martha takes Jesus' words. And her flat response shows that at this particular moment in time, it isn't very comforting. It's like, well, thanks. One day you'll see him in heaven, that's fine. It's like, well, that doesn't do anything for me now. But at another level, Jesus is promising a more immediate resurrection of Lazarus. And this odd point obviously escapes Martha. And only the unfolding drama will disclose the meaning of Jesus' words. Verse 25. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Now, we'll get to the details in a second, but let's first look at what Jesus is doing here. So instead of looking at the past and what might have been, verse 21, Lord, if only you had been here. Jesus invites Martha to look at the future. Verse 23, your brother will rise again. But then what he does, having looked at the future, Jesus then asks Martha to imagine that the future, this promise of resurrection, is suddenly brought forward into the present. The hoped for future new creation and with it the resurrection has come forward from the end of time into the middle of time. And Jesus says here that he is the resurrection and the life. Resurrection isn't just a doctrine. It isn't just a future act. But resurrection is a person. And here, here he is, standing in front of Martha. Jesus has not just come from heaven to earth. He has also come from God's future into the present, into the world that we know. And there's some debate regarding these verses, but it seems more likely here that Jesus refers to himself as the resurrection and the life, 
Well, when he does that, that he's referring to two complementary things. He's not saying the same thing twice. And each of them are clarified in the following verse. So when Jesus refers to himself as the resurrection, he is referring to himself as the final resurrection of believers at the last day. And the second part of verse 25 explains, the one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. And a better translation for that last bit is that will come to life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will come to life. The one who believes in Jesus, even though that person will die a physical death, will come to life. That there will be a reversal for that person of death itself. When Jesus refers to himself as the life, he explains it further in the first half of verse 26. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Now, he can't simply mean that everyone who is alive will believe in me because obviously only those who are alive can believe. John chapter 5 verse 21 says, And just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son also gives life to whom he wants. There is the notion of the life that is the life of God, of saving life, of eternal life, of life of the kingdom. There is an internal change that must come about by the power of God. And in the last half of verse 25, it stipulates that the believer, even though they die, will nevertheless come to life at the resurrection. But the first half of verse 26 stipulates that the believer, the one who already enjoys resurrection this side of death, will in some sense never die. And this is a recurring theme in John's Gospel. In anticipation of Jesus' resurrection and the pouring out of the Spirit, there is a repeated promise that those who believe in him will immediately possess eternal life. John chapter 8, verse 51. Truly I tell you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Ordinary mortal life ebbs away. But the life that Jesus gives never ends. And it is in that sense that whoever lives and believes in Jesus will never die. End of verse 26. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord. She told him, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. Do you believe this? Now, that's a question we all need to face and answer. That's not just for Martha. And her simple yes 
is a fully-fledged confession of faith in Jesus. Jesus is asking Martha that if her faith can go beyond her confidence that Lazarus will be resurrected at the last day to a personal trust in Jesus as the resurrection and the life. The only person who can grant eternal life and promise the transformation of resurrection is Jesus. So people of New Spring, do you believe this? Martha agrees with what Jesus said. She doesn't choose her own way, but she accepts Jesus' way. She may not understand it fully, but as far as she can, she accepts it. People of New Spring, do you believe this? We also know from her statement that her faith is not vague. It has content. Jesus is the Messiah, the one that they had hoped for. Jesus is the Son of God, the one who is not only a godly man, but specifically has an intimate relationship with the Father. Jesus is the one who comes into the world, the long-awaited deliverer, the one sent by God to accomplish his perfect will. Do you believe this? Not some abstract idea of what you think Christianity is. Not some theoretical idea of what you think being saved is. But do you believe in a person? The one that brought God's future to now? Do you trust that there is a life beyond this one and that death is not something to be feared? Do you believe that Jesus provides you with resurrection life, not only in the future, but now? Do you believe that Jesus is Messiah? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that Jesus is the one who comes into the world? Do you believe this? Let us pray.